Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, baseball things considered. My name is Sam Dingman. This, at long last, is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? It is a pleasure to be back in your ear holes after uh, a, a little a little hiatus. Um, people on Twitter have been accusing us of possibly the worst insult you could deliver to the Baltimoreans faithful of being Fairweather fans. Uh, I would like to assure you all that we have been suffering right along with you <laughs> as the Orioles season sort of dried on the vine. But... Um, we we have not been podcasting all that much, but we are back. Should we should we bring people up to speed on what's been going on, or do we think people don't care? There's a lot of shit. There's a lot of stuff been, that's that been has going been happening on. here. I, suffice it to say that it has been a time of great uh, personal upheaval in the life of Sam Dingman, uh, if not Alan Smith. I, I'll I'll leave it to him to decide how he <laughs> wants to characterize the last few months. Uh, but I come to you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, a broken man. <laughs> I tore my meniscus and have been recovering from surgery. This on the heels of the professional situation I, I told you all about earlier in the summer. And the confluence of those factors basically has made podcasting a non-starter until here recently. So we thank you very much for bearing with us. And it is once again my fault, although this time... <laughs> I'm not going to feel as bad about it because really my meniscus did tear clean in half and it, had to have surgery to get it fixed and hilariously was prescribed uh, as a a healing aid the uh, um, the much ballyhooed PRP <laughs> the platelet rich plasma injection which I am here to tell you is a load of garbage yeah it does it does seem like that is some um, that is some black magic that doesn't actually have any medicinal uh, backing. Here's what they do, folks. They take your blood out of your body. Uh-huh. They put it in the medical equivalent of a Vitamix. <laughs> it spins around for a little while, and then they inject it into the injured part of your body. And the uh-huh. idea is that this stimulates the regeneration of lost blood cells. So if that part of the body is particularly weak, it makes it heal faster. And frankly... I now retroactively find it horrifying <laughs> that this is the treatment that was so uh, enthusiastically proposed as a fixative for... Fixative? Fixative is glue. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> as a as a repair mechanism for uh, various of our uh, pitchers and, and shortstops over the years. I seem to remember this being on the table for J.J. Hardy at one point, maybe mm-hmm. Zach Britton as well. Mm-hmm. And it was what it was our it was our brilliant plan for Weeders before he went under the knife for his uh, Tommy John. That's right. It, but it's pretty clearly, from a medical standpoint, a a fast forward button that is designed to stimulate something artificially that seems clearly to me should happen at a gradual, natural pace. Uh, however. That has I, so I have not done the PRPs, but that is the reason for the gradual natural pace of our <laughs> podcast. <laughs> and anyway, now the season's over, <laughs> and uh, most of the last few months of it sucked. <laughs> so we uh, we apologize for not being riding along with you as the as the the tower crumbled in upon itself. But we're here now to um, reflect on the season that was. Uh, tell you a little bit about our emotional state. 
at the end of another Orioles campaign. And then we're also going to hear shortly from a co-worker of mine, a gentleman named Eric Bernstein, who is a third-generation New Yorker and very excited about the chances for his uh, beloved Metropolitans to make this year the equivalent of the Orioles' 2012 run. Who are you guys uh, supporting? If you've cast your lot in with any of the other playoff teams, let us know on Twitter. At BMorons is the handle. It's still active, unlike the podcast (laughs) until recently. That uh, is back up and running, just like our voices into these microphones. And would be interested to know who you guys have decided to sign on with. I'll I'll reveal my selection a little bit later in the show, as will Alan. But uh, let's first talk about the terrible swoon of August uh, and and bring things up to this point, Smith, because that's about the last time we checked in with the good folks in Morons Nation. Yeah, well, I mean, for me, the last two months of the season have been uh, a a sort of frustrating sleight of hand because it felt like it was there for the taking for the entire period of the of of August, um, and actually it reminded me a little bit of 2013 when. There were a series of very winnable games, I believe, against the Diamondbacks. I, it, it was against and the Diamondbacks. And we managed to get swept in three, I believe, extra inning games. Maybe two of them went to extra innings. And uh, I remember hanging on every single one of those pitches. I was not as connected to this year's swoon, and I was more checking the box scores the next day or watching an occasional game. But the feeling was the same, that the entire AL East was there for the taking, that even though the Blue Jays had sort of pushed all in, that the wild card was still there for us, and uh, the team just couldn't quite make it click. And it makes me realize that baseball is such a game of sample sizes that uh, a team that one year looks like world beaters the next year can uh, have balls bounce the wrong direction. And the miasma of a losing streak sort of sucks itself in. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the there was something in my head that clicked when the Orioles started dropping all those those games in August, the, the now infamous 15 of 18 stretch that doomed the season. And it was one of those weird situations where you just knew it was going to happen. Yep. We had been so terrible on the road all season long. And I am somebody who does not put a whole lot of stock in the idea that there is a significant difference between playing at home and on the road. I think if you're a good enough team, you figure out how to play on the road like we did last year. Um, And it was, you could just feel it coming. It had been such a boom and bust team all season long. We'd had a couple of other five to six game losing streaks, which is just not something that happened last year. And it, it was this kind of creeping dread that it, we were looking at a, a house of cards. And I think the thing that is, is hard about it is that the answer is so simple. And for once, it seems like no matter where you look, whether it's Orioles Twitter or Orioles Facebook or the kind of independent Orioles media, of which we're a proud part, or the professional Orioles media, of which we are proud readers or the larger scale baseball press generally, the story begins and ends with the starting pitching. Yep. Masson put up a graphic during the season finale, which showed that if you break out the batting average numbers, the on-base percentage numbers, the runs per game numbers, and 
the bullpen numbers over the course of the entire season, they are almost the defensive numbers. They're statistically basically as identical as you could hope for them to be with the 2014 team with one glaring exception, and that's that the ERA of the starting pitchers was almost a full run higher this year. I think that that is uh, – th there is a uh, wait-until-next-year um, spring training magic moment that happens every year when you look at the performance of pitchers from the year before, and unless they are all 37 or older, you pencil them in for getting slightly better. And even if there's no reason to believe that they will, in fact, get slightly better, and in fact, there's every reason to believe that the previous season's uh, numbers were the best they're ever going to be and perhaps a statistical anomaly in one direction, the heart always sort of, sort of puts people on a logical progression. And they say, well, next year, if, they did, if, if year X they did this and year Y, they will do slightly better because that's how we're told to think about the progression of getting better at sports. Um, it's not true, and, <laughs> and it's especially not true when I think that last year in the 2014 season, a lot of Orioles' arms had career years. Um, and in fact, I think that this year was a very understandable regression toward a mean. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's a lot of grousing that has happened about the fact that Kevin Gosman was kept out of the rotation for such a long time because we felt like we had to make room for Ubaldo because he had such a good spring, and the fact that we did not make a stronger push for a pitcher at the trading deadline rather than Gerardo Parra, who everyone on Masson seems to love, and, you know, to be fair, everyone in the Orioles clubhouse seems to love if visuals are to be trusted, but who put up a pretty anemic batting line. Uh, after he came over. So there are a lot of moments that it seems it feels easy to point to in retrospect. But I think what Alan said is is absolutely spot on. We've been told that this kind of performance was coming for Chris Tillman for a long time. Mm -hmm. And we steadfastly constructed this fairy tale for ourselves that said that he, that explained somehow that he was going to be immune to the vagaries of batting average on balls in play and getting most of your outs in the air when your home park is Oriole Park. And that story turned out to be exactly that, a fairy tale. And I love Kevin Gosman as much as everybody else. And he showed flashes of brilliance this year and showed flashes of brilliance last year. But going into next season, expecting him to be anything more than maybe at the upper end, a replacement for Wei-Yin Chen's production this year is another one of those fairy tales. And I think it's pretty impossible to know where to put Chris Tillman, but it's certainly not in the number one slot. And then, you know, your guess is as good as mine what to expect from Miguel Gonzalez next year. I've been on the record two off seasons in a row advocating that we should trade Miguel Gonzalez while he was still pulling rabbits out of hats. And so I think the refreshing thing about all of this, however, as bleak as I'm making it sound, is that our to-do list for the offseason is an open and shut case. Mm. We need pitching, and it has to be starting pitching, and we need excellent starting pitching, and we need to do whatever is necessary to get those arms onto our team. Well, I uh, would like to pull out another silver lining from the, the this year that was for Chris Tillman, which is the Cy Young he's going to win in three years <laughs> pitching for a National League team. <laughs> Because that's very exciting for me. I like the guy. I want him to succeed. It's just a shame that it won't happen as an Oriole. Alan is is a fan of a good soul patch, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Yeah, uh, and and I will say that 
um, talk about mixed emotions. The last two months of Jake Arrieta has been possibly the most painful thing uh, that it's such sweet sorrow. He, I'm going to say, though, I'm going to say, though, I, I as as tempting as it is to, to go down that black hole of misery. And I've been there. I, I've been I've been dallying down there. Um, <laughs> it's hard for me to feel like he was ever going to come close to this level of production in the Orioles organization. It wasn't going to happen. And it I don't know. Happen. I don't I haven't read enough because it is painful. I haven't read enough about his development in Chicago to understand exactly what has been responsible for the change. I do remember that when he was pitching for the Orioles, they had this weird philosophy against throwing cut fastballs. Right. And that seems to persist to this day. Right. And it's a little bit of a mystery to me why an organization would prevent the throw would not permit the throwing of cut fastballs. It's not like they have any kind of reputation of generating wear and tear on a pitcher's arm, and our track record in that department is pretty terrible anyway. Hunter Harvey, Dylan Bundy, goddammit. <laughs> so I am confused about the Jake Arrieta thing. No, I am too, and I, and I don't pretend that it would have happened in, in Baltimore, um, which is why I think that perhaps Chris Tillman needs to go somewhere else to become the ace that he potentially could be. Um <laughs> No, but I mean, I think you're right about the offseason. I think that we have a very clear goal, which is to improve our starting pitching. I think there will be some starting pitching available that would make the Orioles a much stronger team. Um, I think that you need to resign Chris Davis. So let's go ahead and get into this then. You got to uh, do it. The, the This offseason, as much of an open and shut case as it is, has an astounding number of question marks. And with it, there are a lot of guys who I think occupy pretty big plates, places in our hearts. Not just Chris Davis, but Matt Wieters, our beloved banana man, Darren O'Day, <laughs> the Chentertainer. And these guys are not fringe players. No. You know what I mean? These are cornerstone guys of the Showalter era. Mm-hmm. And they're not all going to be here next year. So right. uh, to jump in with you, Alan, uh, you, you've, you've worn your heart on your sh- sleeve as regards Chris Davis. It, it, tell, me, tell me what you think about that. Got to got to resign Chris Davis. Um, you a, a few years ago when we had, or I guess even in the middle of last year when we had Pop all up and down the lineup, you really had this feeling that there was uh, that the the high strikeouts and occasional power that Chris Davis was providing is not going to make or break this team, but uh, that is no longer the case on this team. We let Nelson Cruz go. J.J. Hardy is still a rock defensively, but his home run hitting ability seems to have abandoned him in his old age. Uh, I do think that Machado has a pretty high ceiling, and I'm extraordinarily... I Maybe the only good thing that's come out of this season is that I feel like Jonathan Scope is a professional MLB slugger of a second baseman. <laughs> um, but I don't think you have anything in the outfield... And I think that Adam Jones uh, goes through incredible hot streaks, but he's not going to provide a uh, year-long power surge. So I think that realistically, you need somebody who strikes the fear of God in every pitcher. And we don't have a player who's capable of that except for Chris Davis. So I don't think that Chris Davis is the kind of player that um, you can sort of drop in the number four hole and pencil in for regular statistics every month. But he's the kind of player who gives you that opportunity to throw the team into fifth gear at the right time and really accomplish something that you would not be able to do. And you can't replace that. 
Yeah. I, I also think it's it's really worth noting because it's the first time that I think I've seen this happen since I've been a fan of the team, or at least someone who's been paying as close attention to the team as I do now. The huge outpouring of open desire for the team to keep him that is coming not just from the fans, but from the players in interviews in the media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Adam Jones and Manny Machado are obviously the two highest profile cases of that. Uh, but Manny Machado, I think, notably um, downplayed the importance of an extension for himself in favor of keeping Chris Davis. And that tells you something about the role that Chris Davis plays in the clubhouse, I think. Um, I think these things don't bubble up and become so obvious in the media from the player standpoint. Players aren't as as open with their feelings about somebody unless they occupy such a significant place that it feels beyond the pale for for the person to not be there anymore. And I think notably, and I love Nick Marcakis as much as the next guy, we didn't hear a lot about that with regard to Nick Marcakis last offseason. And truthfully, we didn't hear a whole lot about that with regard to Cruz either. Um, I think in Cruz's case, that's because I think we all deep down knew that he was a little too old for the kind of multi-year contract that he was going to be up for. But and I don't think that's true for Davis. I think that Chris Davis at this point... Uh, I mean, I, the baseball contracts are absurd, and I imagine us soaking the last year or two of Chris Davis's contract, but I don't see anything that, for the next five years, that's going to change in what he does. He's going to strike out a lot, he's going to hit the shit out of the ball when he hits the ball, and he is athletic enough that he can play an occasional um, right field, he can play a decent first base. Like, he's not going to, uh, there's not going to be a big problem with that. He's not injury prone. I think he's okay in the long run there. Um, and I think that, you know, he's he's the kind of person who, in today's market, if you sign him to a seven-year contract and expect five years out of him, I think that's okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess the only question for me is, when I look at this offseason, I look at it as an offseason where... Peter Angelos is going to have to be asked to open his wallet in a way that he hasn't since the Albert Bell, Miguel Tejada days. That's what it's going to take to bring in the kind of game-changing pitching talent and maintain the kind of game-changing offensive capability that this team has. Because whereas last year, when we looked at the offensive lineup without the prospect of Cruz and um, Marquecas in it, like it or not, we actually did pretty well replicate their absence from the lineup this season. The numbers bear that out. It didn't feel like that all the time. And I think from a perception standpoint, and I think this is a valid thing, it looks like we didn't take enough action to keep the team excellent. And I think that is a problem. But if you look at the numbers, offense was not our Achilles heel this year. However, if Chris Davis leaves, there actually isn't anyone to hit those 47 home runs. Right. And that is that is a significant problem. Now, I'm not saying I think it has to be Chris Davis who hits those home runs. And uh, the point that I uh, the larger point here, I think, is that, in my opinion, you have to do everything possible to keep Chris Davis, except insofar as doing that prevents you from making the improvements to the top of the pitching staff that are so critically required. And if Chris Davis ends up leaving because we decide to, make a you know a a franchise altering run at david price that is probably a ludicrous thing to say i am not going to be sad Mm. about that because that is it 
in my clearest eyed, coldest assessment of what we need, we need pitching more than we need offense. This brings us, of course, to the sticky situation of one Matthew Weeters. Mm. Uh, so far, we have successfully spent quite a bit of money, uh, not our own, on a new starting pitcher, possibly plural, uh, and Chris Davis is undoubtedly mammoth seven-year contract. Sure. I think that means we don't have enough money for Matthew Weeters, and I'm okay with that. What do you think? I am on the record suggesting that we devote the latter half of the season to the Matt Weeters first base experiment. Right. Uh, in anticipation of the fact that we will inevitably lose Chris Davis and that Matthew Weeters may be a weak borscht first baseman substitute uh, who can hit from both sides of the plate and may one day hope to approach the production of your Kendris Morales. He can't hit from both sides of the plate, though. That's, that is, that's a myth. <laughs> that is correct. Um, I am it's also a, it's on, a beautiful story. I am also on record on this program as saying that he should give up switch hitting entirely and only hit from the right side of the plate. Mm-hmm. I didn't make up that opinion. <laughs> it is shared by any number of commenters on School of Rock. However... I think I am done waiting for the Matt Weeders that I was promised. Yep. Having now seen what it looks like for an Orioles prospect to arrive and be everything he was advertised to be in the and form more. of uh, Manny Machado, I think that what we have in Matt Weeders is somebody who is going to receive a tremendous amount of money to not do a whole lot for another team. And a lot of people are going to listen to this, are going to look at his statistics from this season and remind us of the fact that he was injured for a lot of it. Well, I would like to counter with the fact that it looked to my eye like Matt Wieters was overweight a lot of the time Mm. uh, that he was up this season. I could just be weirdly focused on players' weights this season. I also think that that was Chris Tillman's problem Mm. and why he was having trouble uh, locating because he had more stomach mass that he was trying to get over his front side. Mm -hmm. It's not the craziest theory for a regression that I've ever heard, I'll say. Um, But also, Weeders notably just looked a little bit more sluggish behind the plate to me this year. And I know that there is a limit to the effect that... uh, that pitch calling can have on a game. And in the past, we have uh, used pitch calling as the one truly exceptional thing that we can identify about Matt Wieters and how he's a good field general and all that kind of stuff. I just, it really at this point takes a big stretch for me to convince myself that Matt we- losing Matt Wieters is a big loss. I think also with the whole field general thing, I think that's fine if that's what you're paying for. But that's not what we're going to be paying for. We're going to be paying for the um, the prospect and the buzz still, even though that's never quite materialized. And that's what some other team would pay for. And that's the kind of contract we'd have to sign. He is also a Scott Boris. Um, we're going to have some thoughts about Scott Boris later on in the show. But um, because that is a, a major client for, like, because of the way that we know that Scott Boris goes into winter meetings, uh, I don't think that the price tag on Matthew Weeters is going to be the price tag of a 230 hitter who can you know, command the field. It's going to be the price tag of a star. Well, and I've brought this up a few times, but I'll bring it up again. You know, uh, Dan Duquette's 
term of term of art for players who have really earned either a contract extension or a big free agent deal is that they quote ring the cash register mm-hmm. and I think it's pretty impossible to look at Matt Weider's output over the last few seasons and come to the conclusion that he has rung the cash register. It is hard to make that conclusion. You know, I mean, a couple years ago, I, I think it was the during the 2013 season, he hit 22 of the emptiest home runs and drove in 85 of the emptiest runs that I can remember anybody doing since the Luke Scott era. So, <laughs> you know, Matt Wieters is one of those guys that we always want to like more than we really should. Yep. It's tough to come up with a it's com- it's tough to come up with a way of looking at the last couple of seasons and, and reach the conclusion that Caleb Joseph didn't acquit himself perfectly well in the starting catcher role. Yeah, I I'm 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 with that. I I, I don't think that the difference between Matthew Wieters and a replacement level catcher is worth spending and in an off season where we're going to have to make tricky choices i think he's the first one on the chopping block for me i'm going to bang the drum again for jason hayward i shocking i have been doing this for at this point it's safe to say years but think about it people let's assume that he doesn't do what everybody seems to think he's going to do which is just very quickly sign a long-term very reasonable contract with the St. Louis Cardinals and be the cornerstone of their ongoing dynasty for many years to come. Let's assume that doesn't happen. Okay. And that he tries to to play the field a little bit. Dan Duquette, if you are not first in line with a big, fat offer to Jason Hayward, I will lose all respect for you. Here you have one of the best defensive outfielders in baseball who is 26 years old, who has clearly established himself as a Nick Markakis in his prime type of player who is left-handed that is that money spends itself (laughs) i i do not understand the if if we are not throwing all of our resources behind operation chris davis i cannot understand how jason hayward is not a huge priority he is a big time on base percentage guy he has shown flashes of being a big time power guy but the consistency of hitting for a decent average and getting on base a lot has never faltered he could lead off he could bat second and the idea of putting him next to adam jones in the outfield for many years to come just makes me salivate and so i don't know what i need to do to get more people excited about this and perhaps uh, drum up a little bit more enthusiasm in the universe that may perhaps emanate towards the warehouse but I don't understand uh, how that move doesn't make us better for many years to come. We should bring, uh, we should get Mr. Duquette back on the show and ask him about it. Mm, that's true. That's true. So one final question as we confront the offseason. You've heard rumors uh, that the combination of Buck Showalter and Dan Duquette um, may in some way need a change. Are those just the, the um, frustrated musings of people in the midst of a, 15 for 18 slide or is there any meat on those bones i think it's one of those situations where it's been corroborated by enough media sources that are uh that are pretty well respected ken rosenthal um nick cafardo john Heyman, several of the other big time mlb beat writers who have sources i think pretty much anywhere you could hope to have them for it to be confirmed that many times by that many people and for the rumors to have persisted for as long as they have uh, across the entirety of the summer, it seems like there's pretty clearly something to it. 
I don't think that means that it's a death sentence, and I think it's one of those situations that is pretty easy to explain away. It's obvious that Duquette is fairly frustrated by the way things happened with the Blue Jays job during the offseason in that Angelos refused to even allow him to interview for it and then offered him no compensation um, as a counteroffer to what was clearly on the table from the Blue Jays. That's horrible employee management on Angelos's part, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. I think... <laughs> no. <laughs> I think the idea that Showalter would ever fall out of favor with Angelos or that Showalter would want to leave runs counter to everything that we know about Buck Showalter and everything that he has said publicly and everything that he has signaled in the way that he um, runs the team. But it, what if he becomes the, the, the GM and Cal Ripken moves into the dugout? I think that would be very exciting to me. Uh, I think it seems unlikely to happen. I guess my main feeling is, I, I think a lot of us are more excited about the Cal Ripken as manager idea because <laughs> of the symbolic power of it than by virtue of the fact that he might necessarily be good at it. That's not to say I think he would be bad at it, but first-time relatively recent former player managers have a pretty mixed track record, mm. and that has been a very popular move the last few seasons. I will say him in the old box talking uh, baseball in the playoffs last year made me question my Cal has a high baseball I, IQ. He was always <laughs> a quiet leader. <laughs> Even if that is what happens. The main thing I would like to see is to have the situation resolved quickly. And yeah, I think and 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 god clean house. Whatever whatever needs to happen to have the house be clean needs to happen because I do not I cannot abide another year of feeling like Dan Duquette is like making a few moves just to make sure everyone is aware that he's still alive but without any sense of passion about the whole damn thing. And now it seems like the dog and pony show that happened Today gives us a lot of reason to think that everything is fine. He and Showalter appeared together. Apparently, they were very uh, jocular and convivial with each other during the press conference. And it's words like that, Baltimoreans, that you've been missing in the last <laughs> couple of weeks. Jocular and convivial. <laughs> Buyakasha. <laughs> Uh, and I think, you know, it's possible that something has happened. There's already been a conversation behind the scenes between the two of them where they say, for the good of the team, we need to put whatever this is behind us and move forward. And that Showalter said, look, are you going to stay? And if you are going to, and if the answer is yes, then we're fine and let's move on. I, that seems like a Showalter move to me. Um, but the main thing is if Duquette needs to go and there has to be some kind of messy breakup, it needs to happen now. It needs to happen right away so that we can put this behind us and make whatever changes need to happen or not make any changes and just focus on the offseason. Because if we persist in this uncertain space, that's the kind of thing that poisons a front office for a generation and makes players not want to come play for us. And that will be the worst possible outcome of this. Could not agree more. So, Baltimoreans, as you're well aware, you don't come to the this podcast for actual Sage Baseball advice. You come to this podcast for feelings. Um, and as Sam alluded to, it has been a particular bumpy month or a month and a half in his own uh, life and in his own health 
as for me, uh, it's been a, a, a tricky couple of months um, in trying to keep uh, too many balls in the air, as often is the case in my life. Um, and as is often also the case, uh, both of us have been doing a little bit more emotional anthropomorphizing with the Orioles than is entirely healthy. So, Sam, where are you as this season concludes um, in the overall state of the Orioles franchise and how is your relationship with the Baltimore Orioles feeling as of this moment? I think it's pretty goddamn solid. To me, the state of Orioles nation is incredibly strong. And as we have said already on this episode, it is, it, there is no riddle to what needs to happen for us to be right back in contention next year. There is no riddle to what should have happened during the offseason and at the trading deadline this year to keep us in contention this very season that has so recently concluded. This was not a bad team. If you look at our, I was looking at our Pythagorean one-loss record today, which thinks that we were robbed of about four wins this year, which would have put us at 83 and 79. Um, It was by no means an embarrassing season. Mm -hmm. The way forward is not bleak. There are not zero reasons to hope that next year might be better as long as the front office approaches this offseason in a clear-headed and rational way. And as long as we do that, then I think a year from now, instead of fighting with my uh, cable company login so that we can hopefully watch the Astros make quick work of the Yankees, uh, we'll be just as excited as we were last year when the Orioles were one of the best teams in the American League. There's every reason to think that they can be that team again next year as long as a set of very simple things happen. I, I think you're right. I think that the state of the, the Orioles nation is strong, and I think it's interesting to think about the fact that uh, perhaps it is because my own prospects in life, while the last couple of months were tricky, uh, seem strong to me that I can feel so confident that this is not the beginning of a slide back into mediocrity, but in fact a blip on the horizon of a fairly competitive team continuing to be fairly competitive for years to come. Can we reality check about something? Certainly. Is are we, is what we're saying that we fundamentally believe that from a baseball standpoint, there's a lot to look forward to in terms of being an Orioles fan over the next few years? Or is what we're saying that we have both matured enough as adults that we're realizing that even if it doesn't work out that way, we'll probably be fine. <laughs> no, certainly not that last one. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I, no, no, no. I don't what, know how to exist in that world. What I'm saying instead is that the uh, the twin house of cards that are my uh, career prospects and the Orioles franchise's prospects are uh, appearing from my current angle to be equally solid, but when one collapses, the other will surely follow. So... Uh, the the state of the Orioles nation must be strong because if not, then the state of the Allen nation is uh, uh, built on the same shifting sands of of perpetual disaster. Good. So you have decided, as I have, to fundamentally just buy into the idea that your faith in the brightness of the future is inextricably linked to the prospects of the Baltimore Orioles and questioning that through something like psychotherapy would obviously be a foolish thing to do. It would be a foolish thing to do because we have so much proof. 
<laughs> oh, we have we have a, we have a hypothesis that has been confirmed again and again by through scientific rigor to be entirely accurate. So unless there is some strange reality in which these two uh, uh, paths manage to diverge in which, some way, which seems unlikely, which seems highly unlikely. Uh, I think we can continue to think along those lines. What's an interesting new step for me, though, is not to just assume that as go the Orioles, so go I, but instead to assume that as I go well, perhaps I can pull the Orioles up with me, mm. which is maybe a, a a new inversion of what was a tried and true formula. Okay. All right. Uh, well, this year, I think for both of us, it's fair to editorialize and, and oversimplify and say was a year of transition mm. and... Perhaps self- underachievement. Underachievement, but self-assessment mm-hmm. and... Building a solid foundation for the uh, the years to come. Hard choices. Hard choices. Laying the groundwork for... Uh, for a future that is more mindful and purposeful. Surprising injuries. Yes. Hard choices. <laughs> Isn't Hard Choices the name of Hillary Clinton's book? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, uh, who is this Eric character? Ladies and gentlemen, uh, coming up next on the program, uh, the, the most recent in a long string of Alan's co-workers to show up and talk sometimes about baseball, but mostly just about life, the universe, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, Eric Bernstein is a program manager at the Roosevelt Institute. He is the third in three generations of New York baseball fans, and he is really excited about the Metropolitans and their uh, attempt at taking the second half of this season and continuing on to the World Series. He's going to join us right after this. Baltimore fans, you must join with your Mets brethren and root for us in the playoffs this year. Whoa. You must root for us. So, so Eric, um, give 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 the Baltimore faithful a few of your uh, your your Mets bona fides. You are a, a, a New York native. I am a New York native. I'm not only a New York native, but I am a third generation New Yorker. Okay. Uh, not a lot of people can say that. Um, my great, great grandparents came over on Ellis Island and immediately started rooting for the National League Ball Club, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was probably, uh, the, the New York Giants at the time. Now those were some immigrants who had their priorities straight. <laughs> <laughs> Other people started businesses They're and like, went to the ballpark. <laughs> we came here to do things. <laughs> Work in the garment district and root for the National League Ball Club of New York. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so I get, I get my Mets fandom from, from the New York Giants, actually. That's where I inherited it from. So a lot of people claim the Dodgers-Mets connection, but that is actually, a, we have no allegiance or former connection to the Dodgers. They were a separate National League organization. We inherited, <laughs> we inherited our, um, emblem from the Giants, not from the Dodgers. And that is, that is our lineage. I'll be, so, I'll be right back. I have some snarky internet comments I need to take down. <laughs> I have been a Mets fan since I was seven years old, and I went to my first game at Shea Stadium. Um, I don't remember the score or who they played, but I do remember I got to circle the bases. Ooh, and your first uh, yeah, game. which is more than uh, could be said about many of the Mets of the day. Who? Yeah, ooh, got me there. I actually have a, a personal connection to the team this year as well. When I was a fledgling, a collegiate baseball player, 
I trained alongside the uncle of Johnny Monell, who is our, now our third string catcher. Uh, Johnny Monell uh, was once our third string, or maybe our fifth th- string catcher. <laughs> uh, I don't think he ever made it to the Orioles. Oh, he did, did. He make an appearance on their major league club. I know he was in the minor league system. He uh, when rosters expanded uh, as uh, right <laughs> as the so, as is the case for so many brave young Americans. He <laughs> got a cup of coffee. In 2015, Johnny Monell has again benefited from the expansion of the roster. <laughs> now with the future World Series champion Mets. Um, so, so your 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 um the the plea for the Oriole fans to join the Mets organization. You you you're coming at this with a lot of confidence, Eric. Um, yeah, I think it's an easy sell. We both have orange in our jerseys. Okay. Um, and uh, you know we have East Coast values. We're not any of these West Coast hippies. Uh, <laughs> and I think that you know I think that we should just unite. I don't I don't know who else you guys would be pulling for with so many National League East teams represented. Well, yeah, it's, I am it's sort of it's sort of hoping for the uh, rooting for the umpires, as the saying goes. Well, the the masochistic part of my personality is betting that Jake Arrieta is going to throw seven perfect games <laughs> during this postseason. <laughs> do, do you guys have any uh, prop bets going? I, I I unfortunately did not make any good ones in the run up to uh, to this postseason. Well, so I'm going to admit something about myself, uh, despite the fact that I'm the co-host of a marginally successful sports podcast. <laughs> The phrase prop bet gets thrown a lot, thrown around a lot here, and I don't know what it means. So please tell me. A, a prop bet is a, is a proposition bet, which means it's the proposition that a certain, out, uh, act, a certain outcome will occur. So it's a proposition like, um, you know. Number of innings A-Rod Alex, plays before right. he uh, injures his uh, thigh and is carted off the field. Uh, okay. Alex Rodriguez, one home run in playoffs, you know, plus 400, et cetera. Gotcha. Mets, you know, um, so it could range for something as simple as, you know, Mets win uh, over three games to, you know, um, Mets pitchers strike out more than 15 in the postseason. Okay. I have um, um, I have a prop bet that suggests that Ned Yost will um, leave a reliever in the game for three more innings, lo- three innings longer than he should, and the Royals will flame out in the first round. <laughs> How are they going to measure when he should have taken out the pitcher? The internet knows, man. The internet is very <laughs> harsh on Ned Yost. <laughs> I love that. Should have been gone three innings ago. Yep. So let's let's talk about this year's Mets team because all kidding aside, this is obviously a pretty incredible year to be a Mets fan. I think not just because of the fact that they're in the playoffs, but because it's my sense that a strategy that has been unfolding over quite a few years under Sandy Alderson and Terry Collins has really come to fruition. Is that an accurate way of looking at it? Uh, yeah, I mean. Uh... You'd think that if their strategy really came together, we'd be able to bat more than 225 as a team. But, uh, but I mean, certainly the pitching staff is really exciting. And it's, you know, we're, we're ahead of ourselves here. I mean, you know, we belong in the postseason, and I, and I hope we make a run. But, you know, I'm not personally, as, as a Mets fan who's been conditioned uh, to accept failure, this is really just, you know, a stepping stone year for us, I think. We're gonna get good young bats. Our good, our current good young bats um, are gonna mature, and I'm sure we'll make some moves that will be good. I like the Suspedes move. Um, do I you, think he's got. Do you think that the sort of popular take in the press seems to be that the Cespedes move, um, obviously because he went on such an unholy tear after coming over, was the final piece 
do you think that is giving that move more credit than it's due, or uh, do you really think that was that was all the team needed? I'm not. I'm not a you know uh, Bill James. I, I I couldn't. I wouldn't know the numbers behind it, but I have a feeling that in baseball, if if it happens that way, then that's how you know, then, then that's the reason it happened that way. Well, let me, let me put it to you a different way. Let me put it to you a different way. Well put. And I, and I appreciate your perspective. Uh, let me put it to you a different way. When you look at how Carlos Gomez performed um, after the trading deadline and the fact that he was the guy that you guys initially went after, he did it. He did terribly after the deadline, whereas Cespedes is obviously raked. Um, do you, uh, do you feel like you caught the, the winds of fate from the baseball gods on that one or, or do well, you think, well, I think Suspedis is the better raw talent and I think he hadn't gotten a good shake. I don't think he had really, it was clear that he had not yet reached his potential on a ball club. And so I think for that reason, he was, he was the trade with more upside. And I think that's what they went for. And probably historically it should have failed because we are the Mets, but I think this time, <laughs> This time we got lucky, uh, and, and I was very excited because I've been watching Suspedes since he put out that 20-minute promo video of himself working out in Cuba. <laughs> and Roasting uh, the hog you, on the spit and everything. If you guys haven't seen it, it's awesome. It's called The Showcase, I believe, and uh, I used to watch it on a regular basis when One he was of, co- first coming over. As a, as a, as a lifetime New Yorker, uh, three generations of, of New York pride in your blood, Three generations of New York Jewish guilt and <laughs> angst and tell me, tell me seriously, have you ever heard? Have you ever heard of it taking two and a half hours to get from a tunnel in Queens to the Metropolitan Stadium? This is a great question. <laughs> I'm glad you're asking me this because I have to have it. I have it on good authority that the reason Matt Harvey was late for today's mandatory workout at City Field was that he was rescuing not one, but two sets of Siamese cats from a tree <laughs> while while carrying an injured bobcat on his back. So you're saying he's the Cory Booker of staff aces. Uh, I'm saying that on his way to the field, he pulled the door off of a tank and rescued three members of service that were stuck drowning in the East River inside. And then still got to practice before the end. So look for um, for our non-New York listeners, it's been rough out there lately. <laughs> <laughs> Things are going downhill, and Matt Harvey is the only thing. The Dark Knight is the yep. only thing standing between us and certain destruction. No, I mean you know that's as Alan and I said in the office today. Uh, you know, it's it's not exactly what you want to see. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, the week before, um, but you know, I, I think I think things happen, and I think if anything, it could end up being a, a good opportunity for a mea culpa with the team going into the playoffs. And uh, I think that hopefully, it, it, whatever was going on will be pushed aside and handled now that there was a sort of culminating event to push them to that sort of understanding. So while we're on the topic of Matt Harvey, um, pitcher. Pitchers airing their grievances, and Scott Boris clients in particular, airing their grievances in the headlines is something that has been very fresh in the minds of Orioles fans this season because earlier this year, Wei-Yin Chen was optioned to the minor leagues to create 
roster space for another hitter, and Wei Yin Chen had an option, so he was demoted to the minor leagues purely as a matter of procedure, um, and as something that you know that Showalter and Duquette felt would help the team, and he was pretty upset about it and felt like it was a sign of disrespect and it was going to disrupt his rhythm and and said as much uh, on Twitter, causing um, quite the the firestorm or should I say tempest in a Baltimore shaped teapot. Uh, <laughs> The, the Matt Harvey innings limit question got considerably more play, but I think it's interesting to note that they are both Scott Boris clients, um, and those incidents were pretty big-time distractions for both teams. As you look ahead to the role that Harvey's going to play on the future of the Mets, even you know this incident with the workout aside, how did that all strike you? Whose side were you on? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, Boris is an interesting guy. I think uh, a lot of people, myself included, don't love the idea of an agent that wrangles the team um, for every penny uh, and creates this crazy arms race of contracts. Um, having said that, though, you've got to look on the other side of that and remember that the, the owners are making many, many, many multiples of what these guys are making. Absolutely. You know? um, so... It's easy to paint a ball player as greedy because you see him and you know how much he's making and he's getting paid to play a game. You know, I would certainly play for free. Uh, and any <laughs> ball clubs that are interested in my services as a bullpen catcher should definitely contact me, 718 Um But, uh, you know, I, I think there are two sides to that coin. And so I think it's good that the players have someone that's going after these teams and, and getting maximum value because the truth is, um, they're the lucky ones to make it, so they should reap the rewards, you know, as far as that market will bear. But My take on the whole Boris situation personally has always been maybe bad for baseball, but good for the players. I, it could be. There's parts of it that are bad for for the game, but I also think um, I I think that probably it, it's a net neutral, um, or if anything. The, the innings count thing, though, that's what I'm really interested in, because this is this is what I wonder about. It's like, I can't I can't fathom a success on the level that these, you know, players experience it um, with anything in my life. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but seriously, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, might, I might go on to have a successful career in, in whatever it is that I end up doing with the next, you know, 20 or 30 years that I have on this planet. Um, and uh, it's <laughs> not more than that. <laughs> um, but you know, but I probably will never rise to the elite ranks in anything that these gentlemen have risen in baseball. Um, and so I'm I'm comfortable with them getting paid. But I wonder, you know, what at what point is it Armageddon? At what point is it worth giving everything for your shot at success? You know, like, uh, so the, the the innings limitation is interesting to me because it's like if you're in the major leagues and you're in the playoffs and ultimately you're chasing rings, you know, what are you saving it for if, if not the playoffs? Right. Although conversely, I mean, well, I mean, on, on the one hand, as an Orioles fan, we sort of had ourselves penciled in for a playoff team every year for a little while after a, a blip of success, and that didn't end up being the case. So you do sort of want to grab when you can. But on the other hand of that, like, as Eric was saying, like, there is, it is very clear that professional sports franchises are very willing to use and then discard the, right. the corpses of their, yeah. of their former players with very little regard to how those people, I mean, the NFL is the number one clear example of that, but I don't think that right. other professional sports are much better. So 
you do kind of want these guys to be looking out for their own ability to, you know, dangle the old grandkid on the proverbial knee. I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting question to me. I, I honestly don't know how I feel about it because on one hand, you know, I want to see those performances, you know, uh, Kirk Gibson with the, you know, one-armed home run, all that. All, all of the heroic playoff performances, Benny the Jet, you know, all that. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh I, you know, I want, you want to see those, but at the same time, like if Matt Harvey were to blow out his shoulder in this, you know, middling playoff attempt and, you know, game, uh, game for, it, it would be a shame. It would be a shame for him. It would be a shame for the organization. It would be a shame for his family. Um, so, you know, it, it it's hard to say, but it, it does make me wonder, you know, like the Spurs rest their players all year so that they can play in the playoffs. So why wasn't there just better management of his innings before this point? Sure, right. You, you know, know, where he had innings to spare. In some ways, I always feel like this ends up coming down to a conversation about the um, the kind of fundamental disconnect between the sabermetric approach, for lack of a better way of describing it, and the more old-school approach, for lack of a better way of describing it, which is to say people who kind of discount sabermetrics when they discount uh, advanced statistical analysis, they're also um, taking a sort of more boom and bust view of the way baseball works, that um, they embrace the idea of narratives being supreme. They are interested in the idea of clutch performances, of teams having or not having momentum or having good or bad clubhouse dynamics, all those things. And I'm talking about the extreme versions of these points of view, obviously. Whereas on the... Um, sabermetric side of the coin, you have folks who are bringing a kind of quote-unquote reasonable man economics approach to baseball and looking things purely on the basis of numbers and trends and trying to remove as much of the uh, whatever the emotional reality of the game, whatever that may be, from the picture. And I think the, if there is anything that is cool about the postseason, which I can't decide <laughs> this is an ongoing <laughs> problem for me i can't decide if i think i that the postseason is cool or just exploitive um if there is anything that's cool about that it's that it forces people to take a side on that issue you have to basically declare yourself either somebody who is all in for passion all in for glory or somebody who takes a longer view sees the forest for the trees and is more interested in a kind of long-term curated fan experience. Yeah, yeah, I, I suppose I agree. I just, I, you know, you got to think, like, um, to me, you know, unless I was really concerned that my elbow was going to go and that was going to be it, uh, I, I would, I would want to be out there because you never know if you get back to that point. Yeah, yeah, very few, very few opportunities. Well, um, thank you, Eric, for joining us. Uh, we Thank will, you, gentlemen. We will. Uh, we will. I. I myself have cast my lot in with the Mets uh, since about yes. mid-season when I personally decided this <laughs> Orioles season was tanking. Um, I will be waiting to hear back on my request, and I assume that you guys will meet with the High Council of Orioles fans and, and let me know what the ultimate decision is. We will. We will um, perform <laughs> the necessary incantations to summon them into being. And I and I do and I do want to just say for the record that I am not I'm not only in this emotionally but I I am in this monetarily I have I have spent uh, well well over a hundred dollars on 
hypothetical ALDS game for standing room only <laughs> tickets against Alan Smith's warning just for the chance to see the Mets play in the postseason. So nice. I, 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 I'm nice. all in. Se- seven-year-old Eric and 13-year-old Eric who watched the Mets-Yankees World Series on a little handheld television in his bed when his parents thought he was sleeping has been waiting for this moment for a very long time. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really hoping that this is this is going to be it. Thanks for coming on, man. Thank you, guys. This was a pleasure. All right, that was Eric Bernstein joining us. Uh, thank you, Eric, for the time and go Mets. I'll go ahead and say it. Fuck it. Go Mets. So you're all in on the Mets for the postseason? I- I'm not all in on the Mets in the postseason. I'm reserving most of my rooting interests uh, for the Kansas City Royals, the New York Yankees, and the Toronto Blue Jays to somehow all manage to fail uh, in rapid <laughs> succession. <laughs> Okay. So I guess I'm rooting for like a Mets Astros series. Um but really what I'm rooting for is Ventura's arm to fall off and Tulowitzki to uh break his his shoulder again when he returns to the stadium. I am going to go ahead and throw my lot in with the Cubs. Yeah. Uh, that's that's good. The, a lot of a lot of teams to like in the National League. Yeah, and in the Central in particular. Yep. I think when you look at the Cubs, there's just so much to love and be excited about. It's such a fun combination of traditional scouting, sabermetric analysis, really smart, I think, uh, free agent contracts that are high dollar but not stupid. And young power. And incredible homegrown talent. Also, no one, and the truth is no one, has suffered longer than Cubs fans the Mets, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm never gonna go along with the Mets thing because no. to me, if you, to me, a lot of people who like the Mets, sorry Eric, a lot of people who like the Mets like them because they feel like it's cool to like the Mets and it's not cool to like the Yankees. But if you're sorry a, Matt, if sorry Nick, <laughs> if you're a rash and not obviously our dear friends Matty Nissenson and Nicky Markovich. Who I've never called Nicky Markovich before to his face, and would probably not enjoy it if I did. Uh, well, he's an Adam Sandler fan. Yeah, Adam Sandler okay. had that movie, Little Nicky. We digress. Uh, <laughs> I feel like there are a large number of people in Mets Nation who like it because it's the hipster thing to do if you live in New York. Everybody loves the Yankees, but loving the Mets is a way of, I think, kind of associating yourself with a hard luck tradition that you haven't really earned, and. I know that there are a lot of people whose family has been Mets fans for generations like Eric and like all of the other people that we have mentioned and good for those people. But if you are a rational person and basically what I'm about to do is insult you to your face. Mm -hmm. If -hmm. you are a rational person who is seeking an allegiance, I don't understand why you would choose the Mets Mm. because you're opting into one of the most historically terribly managed organizations. I think it's fair to say much worse than our beloved Orioles. Oh, you for sure. are looking at a team that has uh, done a horrible job of nurturing its homegrown talent and... And has, and has an ownership structure that is... Uh, that, that, that gives ground to no ownership structure in terms of crappy people. Yeah, and seems to have purposely built a baseball stadium specifically designed to torpedo the career 
of its franchise player. No, and 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 all of that is totally fair. Um, I would say that the Metropolitans <laughs> are a a group of of baseball players who are going out and achieving anyway, <laughs> <laughs> despite the fact that. Uh, I do not think that there's any long-term plan that has come into effect here. I think that the Mets have gotten incredibly lucky with the fact that every single one of their pitching prospects all the way down the line somehow worked well. They were going to lose R.A. Dickey anyway, and they somehow turned him into Travis Darno and Noah Syndergaard, which is (laughs) like the most ridiculous thing that's ever happened. That was luck. Pure and simple. The Mets are not that good at player development, and there's nothing but chance happenstance that this team is going to come together like it is and we all know because it's the Mets this is the only year they have to do it <laughs> because Matt Harvey's going to get traded in the offseason he's going to force a trade um Syndergaard is going to trip and fall on a rake and <laughs> lose his left eye and <laughs> the <laughs> I mean we, we it's going to happen it's it's an inevitable part of the Met experience so I think in the moment when this factory of sadness is temporarily producing something of merit and uh, and of 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 a certain amount of joy even that it is acceptable to look at that product for what it is all right all right well uh go Mets. (laughs) (laughs) that is the least ringing endorsement of a baseball team i've ever heard in my life (laughs) but uh you're free to make your own decisions Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for listening as always. Uh, You can find us on the internet at our website, bemorons.com. And you can find us on Twitter where we tweet at bemorons. You can also find us as one of the uh, Sister Wife podcasts on Baltimore Sports Report if they haven't changed the locks when we've been out for (laughs) the last couple of months. Uh, Hopefully we're still a Sister Wife podcast. We haven't gotten any official letter dismissing us, so we're going to assume that's still on. And... uh, if you enjoyed the show, hey, take heart. It's, it's, it's going to be back in your ears more reliably now. We are so excited to go into our favorite part of the Orioles season. The offseason. The season. <laughs> when you we can't will... yell at us for not talking about baseball. <laughs> Where we will be talking about the esoteric, the bizarre, and the winter meetings. <laughs> but of course, that is redundant. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the music on the show was, of course, our theme song written and performed by Marshall York. The song Birdland by the band Weather Report between segments. And here on the outro, it's Kicking My Heart Around by the Black Crows. Can I just say uh, how immensely touching it was? I was sitting in a bar in central Virginia uh, by myself. The entire patronage of the bar was me. I was the only person in the bar. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles were playing baseball on the TV, and I was nursing uh, a number the a whiskey. Let me say this: I was nursing uh, a whiskey whose number of predecessors I could not name, <laughs> um, and uh, my phone was dead. Uh, I, I I I was it, I, I wasn't in a good position. Is what I'm trying to say. Henry Arudia hit a game-winning home run, a walk-off home run. That is a thing that happened in the in the in the moment which appeared to be a turning point for the Baltimore Orioles season. Yeah. Spoiler: It was not. But in that moment, 
I was so touched to turn our phone on, my phone on the next day, and to hear from all of you, and I do mean all of you, so many people tweeted and emailed us in joy at Henry Urudia doing something amazing, <laughs> finally, and finally, to help the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, it, it made me really appreciate Orioles, Orioles Nation and the little uh, crevice of it that we have carved out here at Baltimore. So cheers for that. Cheers to all of you. And and with that in mind, Alan, I actually have a playoff edition uh, sign-off question I'd, I'd like to ask you. Oh, really? Which is, uh, what do you call um, Noah Syndergaard Uh-oh. when he is recommending that the Mets front office take a point of view on the future of the franchise that is informed by Voltaire's seminal work, Candide. <laughs> no idea. You would call him Noah, one must cultivate one's cinder garden. <laughs> and good night. Farewell. <laughs>